And we're back with another episode of Lakers History 101. It's Gerald Glassford. Thanks so much for joining us right here, class. It's truly appreciated. Also here today with me as part of our great and outstanding faculty is a good man indeed. He is the madman from Toronto. He did get out of Toronto traffic to go ahead and be here for a special, special guest here indeed. It is the magic man, Sean Grice and magic man. Great to have you here. We've got an awesome guest today. Are you excited, my friend? Very excited. So glad to have Rich here. Uh, Rich, I've been a big fan of your work for a really long time. I did enjoy the uh, the series Vinyl that was on HBO, and I think they really He's missed the boat. He's mentioned it three times. Right? Yeah, yeah they it's a really real big bummer. It's one of my regrets. Well, oh, it boy, shouldn't be. I had nothing to do with you, Rich. I, I just thought yeah. HBO <laughs> missed, the, missed the boat on that one because it was a fantastic series, sir. I will Thank tell you. you, though, it is great to have him here. Outstanding author, like Magic Man said, got a wider range of books that you need to check out, starting with this one. And it's called When the Game is War, the NBA's Greatest Season. It is Rich Cohen. And Rich, great to have you here. I will mention throughout the interview today about exactly where you can get it, starting with Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But there's a ton of other places people can get the book as well. It basically details... That 1987-88, in your opinion, without a doubt, is the greatest season ever. Again, because of everything that came to play for the NBA, as far as from the, the what teams there were available that time, the players that were at the peak of their powers, the players that were just getting into the peak of their powers. But let me ask you first about the inspiration behind going ahead and, and creating such an outstanding book. Well, usually when I write about anything, I think it's something that was very intense from my own life. Mm -hmm. And that was the year that I really fell in love with professional sports and mm -hmm. or with professional basketball. I mean, first and forth. I'd been most I'd watched pro basketball. I'm from Chicago. The Bulls had not had very good teams. And, you know, I was really at that period of time. The big thing in Chicago was the Bears and the Cubs were very, very good. And um, it was a special time in Chicago because you had, you know, the 85 Bears. We had Ryan Sandberg, who was played on the Cubs, and we had Michael Jordan. It was like an incredible time. And when I went back and tried to think what was so intense about that time, I realized it wasn't one of those years with like the greatest team of all time, like the Bulls in 96 or other teams that people mentioned, the 85 Celtics or whatever, as the greatest team of all time. It was that there were there were so many great dynasties that it aligned perfectly. I always think of it as like when all the planets line up every 70 years or something, you know, from the sun out to the edge of the solar system, because the Celtics were getting old, but they were still the Celtics. They were still a great team. It was Larry Bird's most productive offensive year, I think. They had a very great playoff series against the Hawks. And the Lakers, arguably that year, maybe the greatest team of all time. It was their repeat. They won a second year in a row. And uh, the Pistons, I think, were actually the best team that season, although they didn't really get credit for it. And they had this incredible thing where they really had almost two starting teams, because if you knew that team, their bench was arguably better than their first team. And um, they were playing in a way that drove everybody crazy, which was very physical. And then that was when the Bulls just started to be the Bulls, because it's the first year Jordan won his MVP. The Bulls broke through and won 50 games finally. And Scottie Pippen, who would be so crucial, and Horace Grant, who was also crucial, who people don't remember as well, but he was hugely critical as a power forward for those Bulls' first dynasties. They were rookies that year. John Paxson was on the team. He was on the bench. And 
Phil Jackson was on the was an assistant coach. So all the pieces were there. They were just slightly in the background. And by the end of the season, they were coming to the four. And I was I the way I pitched it for people that didn't get basketball, I'm like, it's like Game of Thrones on the hardcore, which is there's all these dynasties fighting for one throne, and you don't really know who's gonna be the hero in the end, you know. Like for me as a Chicago fan, it turns out in the long run, it's gonna be the Bulls for the for the next era, because they're gonna win six of eight. They have Jordan and all that, but you can't tell. And um, and then in addition to the fact is there was more future hall of famers playing then than any other time and they expand it's almost like the dead center of the history of the nba because the oldest was kareem who had played with guys that year who were basically still playing very very recently and then the youngest was like reggie miller and uh i mean kareem played with guys sorry who played almost before there was an nba if you look at the beginning of his career he played with guys who played in the early 50s and then Reggie Miller, who would play with guys who are still playing very recently. So it's just like all the elements. And what's so exciting is I've written books about other sports teams, Chicago teams, but it's always one team. And what made this era great was the level of the competition. And uh, with me, it's like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier era. Like you could be maybe the greatest team, but if you don't have a great opponent, you never reach your potential and no one really gets to measure you. And they had these opponents all over the league. And the last thing I'll say is a great quote that I got from Danny Ainge, who was playing guard for the Celtics that year, which was, you know, it was the greatest era because of all the teams that were playing that year that would have won the championship at any other time and didn't. And he was talking about teams like Dominique Wilkins, Atlanta Hawks, and, you know, even Washington, which was a late seed, the Washington Bullets at the time had this, you know, incredible, incredible team. So that's what I settled on as the greatest era it also helped that i was 17 at the time and everything seemed pretty great well i was uh, actually that point in time 18 and for me i'm looking at reason why i'm looking off in the distance whenever somebody talks about that period of time i always got uh, to take a look at my 88 world championship back-to-back shirt i've got hanging up right now because it's just so for me it was just such a nostalgic time part of it you know, just just when my my love for the Lakers was really starting to to be at such a high peak. But I will tell you that year, like you said, the battles between uh, Larry Bird, you know, like you said, trying to hang on uh, with his best offensive season, but you could start to see, you know, some of the glimpses of what was going to happen. Obviously his back was less starting to let him know exactly what was going on. <laughs> starting to kind of <laughs> catch up to him. Father time was ticking on his, uh, was tapping on his shoulder, but also as well, Dominic Wilkins. I've, a lot of uh, you know people that forget about that period of time, uh, just absolutely forget about, you know, how important a player he was, how electrifying a player he was, you know, because he was already at such a great level as a score already, dunker supreme. But because of the rise of Michael Jordan, often people forget about how great Dominic Wilkins was at that point in time. Yeah, well, the thing, if you, so that year, uh, the All-Star game was in Chicago. And there were actually four players on that team who grew up on the same playground, basically, on, on, in the All-Star game, which was Doc Rivers, Mo Cheeks, Isaiah Thomas, and uh, Mark Aguirre. And so that's – and uh, the reason why I bring it up is the slam dunk competition, which Michael Jordan won, okay? But if you go back and watch it, Dominique Wilkins really won. 
And even Jordan admitted that later. But I think the people judging it thought if they didn't let have Michael Jordan win in front of that hometown crowd, they wouldn't get out of there alive. You know, <laughs> so and you always wonder, like Dominique, his reputation, it's because if Jordan, if those Bulls teams never won a championship, Jordan would be like Dominique Wilkins. I mean, Dominique Wilkins was that great, but he didn't win any championships. And um, he sort of gets a little bit forgotten when people talk about the greatest players. And that year, you know, the way the Celtics won was Dominique Wilkins and in a game seven in Boston Garden, Dominique Wilkins and Larry Bird kind of had this shootout where they went shot for shot against each other in the fourth quarter. And it was like, I would say it's like Minnesota Fats and Fast Eddie Felsen, man. It's like, you're going to, I'm going to beat you all day, but I'm winning them. I'm going to lose all day, lose all night, but I'll win in the morning. You know, Bird just outlasted him. And I think that that's why the Pistons initially being great and physical, by the time they got the Lakers in the playoffs that year, the Lakers were finished, man. They It took so much energy to get past Dominique Wilkins. And people forget that going into that year is the year that Len Bias died. Yeah. Um, he was, you know, the number one draft pick. And first of all, it's such a horrible tragedy. He died of like cocaine overdose or whatever it was the day after. And he'd been being recruited by Red Arrowback for all these years. And he had a dual function that he was supposed to take. One is... He was supposed to, you know, be the next great Lakers uh, Celtics superstar um, as he grew older. But right in the immediately, he was supposed to give Larry Bird and Kevin McHale a chance to rest so they could play late in games. Because especially when you played the Pistons, because they had that great second team that as soon as you took your starters off the floor, man, if people don't remember, their second team was Buddha Edwards, Vinny, the microwave Johnson. Uh, Dennis Rodman and John Sally. Those guys are coming off the bench. Okay, so as soon as the Lakers, uh, the Celtics would take their first team out, the score would run up. So in the playoffs, like when Michael Jordan played the Celtics, uh, the Pistons, he played the whole game. And he could do that because he was whatever he was, 27 years old or whatever he was. But Bird could not do that. And McHale could not do that. And I just think that they just ran out of gas. And that was really the kind of the final blow for them where smarts alone and basketball knowledge couldn't get him over that hump. Magic Man, uh, did you have any questions for Rich Cohen, my friend? Absolutely. Uh, Rich, uh, great segue into uh, what you were saying about the 1988 and the center position being quote-unquote called dead, right? Uh, Jack yeah. McCallum wrote, uh, wrote a big article in Sports Illustrated that year, and he basically he kind of compared Kim Olajuwon's impact to that of Swin Nader, um, uh-huh. which, which, which obviously isn't the, the highest compliment, but as you said, McCallum, McCallum thought that th- the idea of a center was a back to the basket, 15, 15 a night. Uh, but the center position, like you had said, had changed at that point. You had Ralph Sampson, Akeem Olajuwon, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, yeah. Brad Doherty, all coming in at the same time. And it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, what we're what we're kind of seeing today about the pejoratives, about maybe positionless basketball or small ball. And I'm wondering, uh, through your abundant research, I mean, did you feel that there was kind of a, um, uh, a negative um, sort of construct because Michael was this perimeter player that had not been seen yet and people just had to make the make their peace with it that this was the the new nba isaiah thomas was coming 
Michael was coming. It was a different game. I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that you have these positions which you're supposed to play a certain way, but the great players play whatever they, however they can play, however they want to play, and then they reinvent the positions around them. And people don't remember, because my father was a basketball coach, so he, he talked a lot about history of basketball, and the center really was the birth of the modern NBA. The center was the player. And you saw it in that everything ran through the center. And when you watch the old Lakers, the idea was get it into Kareem and then Kareem would work it around to people on the outside. What Mike, the, the, the rub on the bulls is the bulls had, didn't have a great center. They'd had one in artist Gilmore once upon a time and artist Gilmore was back with the bulls, but he was old and he was ineffective. So what Jordan proved to me at the time is you don't need a great center to win in the NBA. You know, um, you have a good center. You need a good center like Bill Cartwright was, but you don't need Hakeem Olajuwon. I mean, a team with a with a player like Jordan. And then the other player that was sort of, there were a couple players then that really were a premonition of this current era, which is Scottie Pippen was really a swing player. He grew up playing point guard and then he grew a foot or whatever in college. And they moved him to forward. Um, and so he could sort of swing back and forth between inside and outside. And now it seems like half the people in the league play that way. But he was the first guy I ever really saw that play that way. And um, the other one was Bill Lambeer, who was a center for the Pistons, much hated. But if you watch Bill Lambeer, he didn't play like any other center then. He set up at the top of the key, and he was more effective. He was good defending on the inside, but he was more effective shooting from the outside. He made a lot of outside shots, and he made three-point shots. So I do think that – and then there was other reasons why, but that was the beginning of the kind of new kind of much faster – basketball that probably started with the Lakers actually and that you know everybody had to learn how to play this is Raphael from NBADraftJunkies.com and you are listening to the Lakers Fast Break check out what's been going on with the Pop Culture Cosmo Show and the PCC Multiverse the better that these Marvel films do the higher the standards are going to be for not just other films in general but other Marvel films also I think it's really hard to end a show with this many fans in a satisfying way that's the Pop Culture Cosmo Show and the PCC Multiverse playing worldwide on radio seven days a week and wherever you get your podcasts once again, it's Rich Cohen. Please go ahead and check out his awesome book right now. Please go ahead and order it like I did on Friday. I'm <laughs> waiting for it to come in. So it's going to come in to me, and I can't wait to read it. It's When the Game is War, the NBA's Greatest Season. But also here today, good man indeed. I was going to ask a question from him because I know it's something he wanted to talk about when it concerns Len Bias. But he's here himself. It is Joe Sorrow from Ox1947, LakersBall.com, and Simblades, SimbladesWithAY.com. Joe, great to have you here, my friend. Rich Cohen is here. Please go ahead and uh, share your thoughts with him, my friend. The question is now yours. Thank you for, uh, sorry for being late. I, I'm around a lot of noise. I'm mobile at the moment. Uh, everything in this goddamn town is loud. So <laughs> I'm trying to get I'm trying to get somewhere where it's quiet. But anyways, Michael Cooper was quoted, uh, I believe it was last week, that had Len Bias not passed, that they would not have been able to beat Boston. So I've asked some of my Laker friends that same question. Some believe that it, I think, the, I, I don't know if it's a, a respect thing or just a, a decency thing that Michael Cooper's doing there, but it would, it, it is a good question in that does Len Bias 
allow the Celtics in 1987 to not have to play as rigorous because I, I think McHale was injured, LeBird was injured a little bit, and obviously having the talent that Len Bias had at the time, I, I can't really judge that. That's always been the question to me. Everyone said that this guy was supposed to be LeBron of that time, but I tend to think that people romanticize things a lot out of, out of, out of respect to, to what happened. The real question is, and I was a little too young to, to really understand what was going on at the time, was Len Bias going to be a star? And if he was, does the best, arguably the best Laker team win the title in 87? Yeah, well, this is kind of what I was just talking about. And it's interesting because um, you can go back and watch Len Bias in college and you can see what kind of player he was. And he played several games against Jordan. And he and the people I talked to, a lot of them said, well, he wasn't Michael Jordan, but he was in that class. I mean, he was going to be one of the best players in the NBA for a long time. And the Celtics, the reason why they hung on, one of the rubs about the Celtics in Chicago, one of the reasons given for why they let that team break up, uh, and you know, when they finally let Jordan go and everything, was that we don't want to be like the Celtics and hang on to our superstars too long and they get old. And and the fact is the reason why they hung on to all those guys is because they, they had this plan, which was Len Bias was going to come in. And um, he was, like I said, he was going to give what you just said. He's going to let Kevin McHale and Larry Bird rest so they can be fresh at the end of games. And he's going to contribute huge points, first probably as a sixth man, which is how they started McHale. And then eventually he's going to become the center of that team as these guys retired and will draft new players around him. And that they just got a huge hole blown into them because of that. And not only that, I mean, we can kind of underestimate the psychological gloom for somebody for what happened, you know, like it just puts, it's just like a horrible thing and people are human, man. And they, 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 it puts everything in perspective. So I think that you can never, of course, know. You don't really know if Len Bias would make the transition. We've all seen great players in college. It didn't quite pan out, so you don't really know. But I think that there's a pretty good case to be made that the Celtics, that Celtics team would have won, you know, another two championships maybe if Len Bias was around. And then they would have come up with a different team that would have won more, and the Celtics thing would have continued. A lot of I asked everybody I interviewed who was the best team of all time. Uh, from this era and every team got a vote but a lot of people said it was the Celtics with Bill Walton playing you know in the lineup so there's no reason to think that Bill Walton sort of being out and Len Bias being in why that team wouldn't continue to be a dominant dominant team in the NBA so I I I know what team they're talking about they're talking about the 86 team when Bill Walton in the really in the two years of his entire career where he was able to manage his injury issues the thing is with with Bill Walton, and it's something that doesn't get discussed enough about him, is he was probably the, you know, Tim Duncan, obviously, and, and Magic Johnson are are the ones that get the most uh, noise about it, or I should say news or, or accolades about it, where they were just complete team players. But Bill Walton was maniacal about it. Like, he was so entrenched in the team basketball mentality. All he cared about was team, community, and wins, and winning as a community, winning together. Uh, the 86 team was was great. I just, I think Bill Walton is, 
I don't know if I could compare anybody to Bill Walton. I guess that's kind of my question. But it's it's a what if that I haven't really kind of gotten. I haven't really, and all the stuff that like guys like Sean and I have, Sean and I have talked about things in the past because we have to have that ability to remember that kind of stuff. And it's one discussion that I actually have not really talked about a lot with friends and people who actually watch the NBA. It is a really good question. I mean, it's probably worth doing a show on it where why? Why was Len Bias so good? Why were the Celtics so good uh, at that time? Uh, you also have to remember Reggie Lewis years later. Yeah. He so the, the leprechaun left, it seemed, yeah, after 1986, and they got just destroyed by just tragedy. So, right, and Bird and so, Bird's career was kind of shortened by what was, if you believe him, he hurt his back in the offseason while shoveling gravel in Indiana. So, that's kind of a freak thing. Like, he probably had some more good years in him, but I just remember at the end when I was a little bit older, him playing when he would come in, have three great minutes, and then be lying on the sideline. He, like, turned into my Uncle Ralph where he was having back spasms, you know? So what what his doctor would say is, imagine – I'm just kind of going to keep it quick here, buddy. You ever gotten your hand caught in the in, in between the door when it closes? Uh, yes, I have. He said that's what his back would do. Uh, I thought that was a really good analogy. I'm like, damn, uh, man, imagine that on your back after three minutes. I'm like, I hope this guy even walked. The problem with Larry Bird, and I'm not trying to dog on him on this, but damn stubbornness. My God, why did you have to put asphalt on your street? Just yeah. have somebody else do it, you know? But, Just uh, French Lick, Indiana, I, man. That's, yeah, you can't yeah, take the French he, Lick. He came from French Lick, Indiana. They do things on their own. They do things on their own there. That's a different beast, though, man. I mean, it's one thing putting pavers down and maybe some fake grass, <laughs> but, geez, that stuff's taxing. But, um. The other thing is, we keep thinking about the Lakers because we're selfish, because we're Laker fans, right? What happens to the Pistons if Len Bias doesn't die? Do the, does Isaiah and the Pistons become relevant? That's the reason why we need to have a show discussing yeah. kind of what would have happened in the NBA at that time. Because obviously, well, also not- what happens to the Bulls? I mean, what happened to the Bulls if Michael Jordan has to go into Boston Garden and play against Len Bias for yeah. eight years or whatever? It's a different story, you know. That's that's a good question. If if Reggie Lewis, I, I don't know if they would have been bad enough to get Reggie Lewis, so that might be a little different. Uh, but there is that, there is there is a history that says that Red would always replenished. So maybe they do replenish in the in the early nineties, and and end up being competitive at the time. But I'd say, in that last four years, four seasons of the of the eighties, a lot of things would have changed in a lot of areas. And I think it's a it's an interesting what if I well, one of the things that, that he did. One of the things that Aeroback did with he didn't just replenish, he would find like a tent pole to build around for years. You know, so those guys are hard to find. Like Bill Russell was one of those guys. Obviously, Bird was one of those guys. Len Bias was supposed to be that guy. So it's not like you can just find somebody else like that. That's like a generational talent. And even all sports, when the when you blow a first round pick. Uh, a top pick teams don't recover from that. I mean, it takes, it's messes everything up, you know? So it's like you handicap yourself. So then you lose this top pick in such a tragic, horrible way. I just think that that was really what that kind of ended that run of the Pistons. And then red Airback got old. 
I will say, though, that it is so great to have you here. It is Rich Cohen, author of the awesome book, When the Game is War, The NBA's Greatest Season. Also here today, good man indeed. It is one of our good friends, Mr. Laker Nick. Laker Nick, great to have you here. Any questions you got for Rich Cohen, my friend? Hey, Gerald. Uh, what's up, uh, Joe and Magic Man? Rich, it's great to have you here. Um, apologies, I'm a little tardy. Um, and maybe some of my questions might have already been answered. Uh, we'll um, send you to detention later on, my friend, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Rich, I, I was just actually more curious about the writing process uh, for this book. Um, you know, obviously, 87, 88, this was before the advent of email and all that stuff. So um, I'm curious to know what sources you used. I assume you interviewed folks, you talked to different people. Um, I'm curious to see what other primary sources you used in order to actually draft uh, the book. Well, actually, weirdly, because there was an email and there weren't so many highlights and all that stuff, there's actually better biographical primary material because it was like a more written culture in some way, it depended more on writing. So I interviewed a ton of people. I watched all the games. But one of the really great things is each one of these teams was covered by two regular beat reporters who covered them every single day. So I was able to go back and read every single one of those stories and then watch the games with those stories in mind. And then in addition to that, there would be like the national reporter would come in or whatever. So you had this uh, kind of, well, as a matter of fact, I wrote the bibliography for the book and the publisher said to me, can you, your bibliography is too long and it's going to crash the iBook or whatever. Can you like condense it? So I had to just say all these stories from this period at this time. So, uh, but the best sources were watching the games. Every book I write, it's like a series of different sources. And then you try to, it's like a rope. And then you weave them together and try to create some kind of a seamless narrative. And the idea is to create something that feels like a nonfiction novel. So it doesn't read like a history book. It reads like a novel. And the idea is that people who would have remembered these games while you're reading, it would sort of forget who won and get into it again. And the way I organized the book is actually is only four regular season games. And um, used each game as an occasion to introduce all the players on each team. And then the playoffs and the finals. So the primary sources were the games themselves, the, the players and, and the coaches and all the reporting at the time. Magic man, uh, up to you, my friend. Any more questions for Rich Cohen on his book, When the Game is War? Yeah, absolutely. Rich, in the book, you write that uh, Isaiah Thomas, you feel Isaiah Thomas was the toughest player, inch for inch, pound for pound in NBA history. He was, he was the only player on the greatest 50 of all time who was under six feet tall uh in the 75 list there were two other players added to him as well chris paul and alan iverson now i i think uh ai is the toughest of all time but i was i was reading your argument and i gotta say it's kind of inarguable like to be honest because uh isaiah isaiah has the the titles to prove it I'm wondering what when did you finally make the um, posit that yes, Zeke was the toughest of all time. Well, I remember on Facebook somebody made a crack about Isaiah and a guy that I grew up with talked about and I said, hey, what about Isaiah doing this? And he goes, oh, fake, 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 crocodile tears. And it's like, I realized because I'm from Chicago, people hate Isaiah Thomas. They hate him, and it's like almost a religious hatred of this guy. 
And that sort of shocked me because I always loved Isaiah because Isaiah's from Chicago and he grew up on the playgrounds and he played in a recognizably Chicago style. My father, like I said, played basketball, was a basketball coach, and he was from Brooklyn and he grew up playing on the courts on Coney Island where they played the same way, which was like if you played one-on-one with my father, you could make a layup over him. This is when he was old and wearing loafers and a suit pants when he played you. If you made a layup over him, you were going to be slammed into the garage door and end up the end the play on a heap on the garage. It was just part of the game, you know. So he recognized Isaiah early, and Isaiah came and played against our high school team. And I saw him when I was a kid, and he's very charismatic, great looking, and he looked very young. He looked like a kid, and he was so much smaller than everybody and so much better than everybody. So this is like in high school. So I started traveling around with my father to see him play in all these tournaments. And then I was a big college basketball fan. And I went and watched him come to Chicago, play against Northwestern. He played for Indiana. Everybody talks about the Magic versus uh, Bird College NCAA championship, which was great. And I watched. But to me, just as exciting was Isaiah won at Indiana with Bob Knight. So I always had this idea. And, and Isaiah, I think what happened with Isaiah was he wanted to be the most beloved basketball player in Chicago. He grew up two blocks from Chicago stadium and he tried to get himself drafted by the bulls. And he ended up on the Pistons. He formed this personal rivalry or thing with Michael Jordan. It became personal. It became hatred. And in the whole lore of basketball, Michael Jordan became God basically. And if you're the enemy of God, there's another name for that, which is the devil. And that's how he was like seen by so many people that I, that I grew up with. But for me, the moment when I realized he was, I felt the toughest and I knew he was great. Cause I knew when you were sm- that small, you had to be not as good as the, you had to be better to compete at the same level. So um, the game that year, and this was the impetus of the book. And it's how I start the book game six of the 1988 NBA finals in the LA forum. Oh, was it in the forum? I'm sort of spacing out when, uh, when, when, yeah, it was in the forum. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah. I had to think for a second when Isaiah rolled his ankle and it looked to me as a kid, like he broke his ankle. I mean, it looked very, very painful. It's the kind of thing that you watched in slow motion and you felt it in your stomach, you know, and you just felt like that was it. He wasn't coming back. And he came back in that third quarter and he hit 25 points in that in the third quarter which is still a playoff record and he was making every kind of shot from everywhere he was not a little guy who shot from the outside he's a little guy who went inside and then when i went back and watched the whole playoffs i realized there were two different times in the course of that postseason where i believe isaiah thomas was unconscious when he got knocked out and he would leave the game groggy come back my favorite is he came back in the ground against the bulls only because when he got to the locker room uh, in Detroit, the locker room was locked and he couldn't get in because probably there'd been like, you know, somebody stealing wallets. So was he came the, back, came back. Oh, he gets the balls. He, yeah. Against yeah. Him. Was that the game where Lambeer hit him in the balls? Hit Jordan in the balls? Yeah, I believe it was. Yeah, that is okay. the game where he hit Jordan in the balls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Jordan said he hit me in the balls. Yeah. And Isaiah, <laughs> Isaiah, Isaiah left. Yeah, Isaiah left, came back. Came And it looked like suddenly the Bulls were making a run. And Isaiah, just after you'd seen him, like, leave semi-conscious, came back and made, like, nine points and uh, made nine, made, scored nine points in three minutes or something. And the Bulls season was basically over. He basically ended it. 
you know? So, and I think another guy that he played when the way he played hurt in a way people probably now wouldn't play. So he shortened his career too. You know, I mean, he was so beat up by the end of his career. And also the last thing I'll say about that is I believe that if Isaiah had been drafted by, let's say the Lakers, he would have played in different kind of basketball. Anybody who'd seen him play knew that he was really a finesse player, that he could score 30 points a night, and that he did in his first few seasons. But he realized where they were in the East, the game was so violent. And to get to the finals, they had to go through the Celtics. And the Celtics had like the biggest front line in NBA history with all Hall of Fame front line, with Parrish, Bird as the small guy on the front line, and um, McHale, that they had to get tough. And they had to play that way to get by the Celtics. So, you know, that, and he accepted that and said, this is going to be our way to become a great team. And we're not going to be able to play like the LA Lakers. I'm not going to be able to play like my friend, Magic Johnson. I'm going to have to play, you know, in a much rougher kind of basketball. And then, of course, the last thing I will say this is that the reason why he really became hated is he made that comment the year before where he said, if Larry Bird were black, he'd be just another player, whatever his exact line was. And that was a stupid thing to say. And he said a lot of stupid things. And the thing about Isaiah is I think that I don't think he really believed that. I think what happened is his Rodman said it. And Rodman was a rookie. And Rodman said it because he'd just been embarrassed by Larry Bird. And anybody who's been around sports or played sports knows that if you're embarrassed by a player, it doesn't matter if you do it, you know, at a youth hockey game or playing high school hockey or you come off and you say a lot of bad about that player. You just do. And that's what Rodman did. And they went up to Isaiah and Isaiah felt like he was backing up his teammate. He was being a good captain and he got himself into this whole heap of trouble that his image has never recovered from. Well, it's just so fascinating because the fact that, you know, you look at the rosters, you, you know, your book really brings out uh, as far as what was going on in the league at that time, but all the players, the, the history of the players that were, involved in that season you know even if you look farther and deeper one of the things i was looking at as far as when i went into the rosters and looked at that period of time and reminded myself that it's the one of the last places that you saw or one of the last teams that you saw daryl dawkins you know yeah. who has such a history with this league uh, for altogether different reasons he was a, a a center just going off his last days with the utah jazz but Speaking of the Utah Jazz, you see the rise of John Stockton and Carl Malone. Just so many. You could go to any of the top teams in this season oh, yeah. and just point out you know, just the future greatness or the current greatness that was already there. Denver, who was the top team in the uh, in their division, they had Alex English just, just going on and on. They're, they're, you know, as far as Doug Moe was already just having that, that you know, this continual winner, high-octane offense and all that. Just just the sheer history of it, my friend. That's what you, this book brings out. I think it's the best part about it. It's just, it reminds people of just how great all those players were at various points in their career. And it all combined and it all came together in that one magical season. Yeah. And you, you know, you really saw it was, everybody talks about the Olympic dream team, but the team that Jordan was on, you know, whatever it was in 84, is that the right year? Where it was the last sort of real amateur team. And don't even look at who was on that team. Look at who was, didn't make it, who got cut. Charles Barkley was cut. John Stockton was cut. Patrick Ewing was on that team. Jordan was on that team. That team, the Olympic team in 84, went around and beat all the NBA 
pro players. They they were undefeated playing NBA teams. That was the first time Jordan played against Bird was was when Bird came out because the head of the NBA said we got we can't lose all these games. Let's get some good players to play them. And they went and they got you know and the guys not playing with their teammates and out of season and everything, but still the best players in the NBA went out and lost because they were playing you know Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, whoever else is on that team. You can look at it; it's, it's half of them become Hall of Famers. So it was this incredible wealth of talent and players all over the league that you saw them in almost every city. I mean, go look at the I don't remember look at the roster of the Atlanta Hawks beyond Dominic Wilkins. Look at that roster. You know, it's crazy how good that team was. Or look at the Bucks or Cleveland. You know, they there were there were these teams that even like I said Washington who were good team, really good team. So that's why I think it was the greatest season because of this incredible parity and because any night, even the regular season, these guys wanted to win. I think that's one thing that's missing now which is the fact that free agency existed, but it was much more sparely used and teams stayed together. I mean, Jordan, Pippen, they played together for whatever it was, over 10 years. And they played against the Pistons team that didn't change either. And they came to hate each other, just like you do when you play the same team again and again. That's what makes the playoffs so intense. These guys start to hate each other as the series go on. So that was like when the regular season would happen and the Bulls would play the Pistons, it was like a playoff game and it was really super exciting. And they would give up their bodies and do stupid stuff because they couldn't stand to lose, you know? And I think that to some degree is missing. And that's a problem because when you have a very long season, you want, you want, want to find a way to make all the games, you know, important. And I think the key to that is rivalries. That's why as a Chicago fan, like we have these rivalries, the bears Packers, it doesn't matter if both those teams are zero and eight, they're both going to, you know, it's going to be a vicious, violent, tightly contested game or Michigan and Ohio state football or anything like that. That's what that era had too. It had those rivalries. Joe, uh, any thoughts for rich on that? Well, they neutered the player in a lot of ways and they don't allow the hatred to, to fester anymore. <laughs> uh, you, you have, you, 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 you literally can make a basketball play and in the heat of the moment, they got to stop the game, go and, I was going to use another word, but it's a Sunday morning. I'm not going to do that. Waste our time for 40 minutes trying to make a call. If a flagrant foul, and we've discussed this, Rich, on the show plenty of times, how bad of a flagrant foul is it if you have to review it? Yeah. When you do that, you just take the the energy of the game out. And now, much like they've destroyed the NFL, the second you breathe on somebody, it's a penalty, and they always do it at the worst time so that it completely derails and kills any enthusiasm, kills any anything out of that player, and that player will not do it again. And then it, it, he's always a step, uh, half a step behind because he's hesitant on being aggressive. And you take away the aggressiveness because of some some idiot that threw food onto a, a court and it turned into a melee back in, in, in Detroit. We always have to use one crazy thing to justify 400 stupid things. That always drives me nuts. I'm like, look, it, it, it happened once. Why, why, why do we have to be punished for the rest of our lives for one idiot who decided to go into the stands? But you're taking away the energy. You're taking away the rivalry. And 
all they're doing is they continue to just keep making these gimmicky things to cover it. When in fact, if they just let these guys play and have some emotion, then, you know, we might have that, I guess, must-see TV energy that, that I think the NBA is missing. But I don't know. I, I, I think maybe we're I, – I always – I'm kind of thinking to the point where I'm like, well, if the salary cap keeps going up, I hear things, but the numbers don't connect. So in California, I'll use an example of California. Everyone's saying, oh, everybody's leaving California in droves, yet the, the real estate keeps going up. So how yeah. does that – if, if everybody because spending, fewer people have more money to fewer people have more money to spend i think that's some of it i mean i could be could could be i but mean i think my, with my basketball is- I, I mean i totally agree with you 100 percent. i mean i'm i wrote a book about the chicago bears 85 bears the most violent team in the history of football and there was a great quote there's a player who wasn't on that team but sort of became the gave the defense its name and he became a friend of mine and he explained football in a way i've never heard it explained named doug plank who played was known as the human missile. And he said to me, you know, my entire career now would be considered a penalty. Every single thing I did would be a penalty. You know, so I think that people forget that basketball is a contact sport, you know, and there's a way, and there was a degree of, when you get to the playoffs, it was like a war of attrition too. It was which team not only had more skill and a better plan, but which team sort of could take more. You know what I mean? Could like, uh, was tough enough to, to, to take that prize. That's the, when the game was war and that's the whole point of the title. And that's the game of Thrones thing, which is there was a real physical element. And I think it is because of the fight in the stands in Detroit, but I think it's also the league got scared by what the Pistons was able to do to really high scoring teams by shutting them down physically. And um, you know, with the bad boys and everything, if you look at the bulls, they scored in the playoffs against the Pistons a year. I write about 79, one game and 77 another, and they had shut them down. Jordan, who had averaged 45 points against the Pistons in the regular season, would average less than 20 in the playoffs. And I think that the league saw that as they really, it's true with all sports, they see offense as what makes the game popular. Statistics, high scoring is what makes the gambling go. You know, you need that for all the sports gambling and for the highlights. And it takes a certain kind of fan to, enjoy, to really sit there and watch a defensive battle where it's really hard to score. You know, so what I find a shame is there are certain players you see them playing in college, they're great, and there's no place for them in the NBA because they can't play that kind of game. The kind of game they play doesn't exist in the NBA anymore. So I think that basically, and I think it's true of all sports because I've been watching the baseball and the football, the, the referees in all our sports are way too involved. I mean, I hate when you come away from a game and the main, you know, the referee's name by the end and you've discussed him with friends and you've been angry about him. I don't even, the referee should almost be invisible. And it's amazing the degree to which decisions by the refs often determine what happens in the games. Hate it. It's gotten to the point where you you don't want to be jaded and cynical, but you you know, the, I don't want to say it's fixed, but it's, it's definitely Hmm. somehow, somehow manipulated. And I had, you know, in, high, in my high school, we had uh, we had advisors for four years. Maybe every high school has that one guy for four years to kind of grow up with them. And ours, we had a great guy. It was like a character from a Frank Capra movie named Pete Burnside, who had pitched in the major leagues for 15 years in the golden age of baseball. And he insisted that the games were were fixed. I mean, he was kind of crazy. He wasn't a crazy guy. And I'd say, how are they fixed? And he'd say, oh, by the refs. 
He said, statistically, there's no way so many games end up so close. The scores end up so close. You know, he was convinced that like key calls here and there just kept the score close or whatever. So, but if you're watching your team with sort of an eagle eye, it just seems like there's a lot of calls that make absolutely no sense, especially now when you have the video replay. You know, there should be, it seems like there, it, there should be no mistakes at all. I don't know. So I can see how, I don't want to be cynical either, but when you're really emotionally involved and you see a call that makes no sense at all, it makes you suspect the worst. We're signaling the ref for a quick timeout, but we'll be back with more of the Lakers Fast Break Podcast. Hey, Lakers fans. Looking for the best place to go for up-to-date news, information, original videos, articles, podcasts, opinion pieces, and discussions about the Los Angeles Lakers? Well, look no further than Lakerholics.com. With a legion of followers always there talking about everything Lakers and the NBA, there's no better place to go to share your fandom as the team heads toward another championship run. So stop by and be part of the conversation today at Lakerholics.com. Laker Nick, you're up next, my friend. Any questions uh, more for Rich Cohen? Uh, yeah, Gerald and uh, Rich, and uh, relevant to the discussion right now that you were having with Joe, um, I was actually just curious, um, based off your uh, research for this book and you studying, you know, the 1980s like era of basketball, um, I'm wondering if you could identify either one or two things that you actually think are better now in the NBA, like on the on-court floor product. Um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, broadcasting is better, right? Uh, games aren't on tape delay. You know, people have easier access uh, to consume NBA games. But I'm wondering if you actually see some things on the floor that have actually improved since that 1980s era. I think the players are on a whole better athletes now. I think it's probably, and they're better conditioned. And I think that the best players then would still be the best players now. But when you get to the bottom of the rosters, I think the bottom of the rosters then are not as good as the bottom of the rosters now. So I think the median level of talent was, is probably a little higher now. And also now you have this influx of international talent, which has opened up the pool of talent and brought a, new, a lot of new players with their own styles in. And I think that's been, and you just started to see it then, actually, you just started. The first few guys were coming into the league from Germany and places like that. But once, once the Soviet Union fell, think about it, like that happened. The Berlin Wall fell. I think I was a senior in college. And I remember I went on a reporting trip to Lithuania. There's a lot of Lithuanian Chicago guys. There's a huge Lithuanian community in Chicago. And there are a lot of Chicago business guys then, Lithuanian origin descent living there. And I went there to write a story about him. And I just was hanging out watching basketball, like on a park. And I'm like, I assume they'd be bad. I mean, they had been behind the Iron Curtain. Like, how do they know? And the talent level was so high, you know, of just this pickup game in the park. And now, of course, you see those guys. You've seen them for many years in the NBA. But I think that that's a huge improvement to the game that's made the game better and raised the level, which is you're now drawing players from all over the world, which just wasn't the case back then. Tell you what, though, great to have you here. Again, it's Rich Cohen. Please go ahead and get his book, Orders Book Now, When the Game is War. 
the NBA's greatest season. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Bookshop.org, Hudson Booksellers, Pals, Target, Walmart, wherever you get your great books. Magic <laughs> Man, any more thoughts for Rich Cohen? You know, in that season, the Lakers pretty much had to claw their way to the NBA Finals, excluding the San Antonio Spurs series. Yeah. The Dallas Mavericks with a Roy Tarplu, who obviously wasn't hmm. uh, drinking or on cocaine at the time, uh, managed to take them to Game 7, and then they ultimately played the Jazz in the Western Conference Finals. Now, to me, Rich, as far as the 80s go, I think the Jazz are the team that, that has the most potential and the least fulfilled of it. I'm wondering what, what your opinion is of that, because I'll, I'll give you a little stat here. John Stockton played in 182 playoff games. He only scored 30 or more points in four. Hmm. So they really relied on Carl Malone and Mark Eaton a lot during those during those early years when Stockton was playing. I was wondering, did, did in your research, what did you find that Lakers uh, players and coaches found more difficult? Was it the Mavs series or the Jazz series? Well, first of all, I think probably it was the uh, Mavs series. Okay, ultimately, because Tarpley was such a problem for them. And basically, Magic Johnson had to go in and play against him head to head and get beat up, knocked around and become a, like a center. It was like he'd done right back his rookie year when he played against 76ers. He could play any position and he was so versatile. But that's not something they wanted him to do. And it's not something that he wanted to do, probably. But it's something they had to do to win. They had to kind of invent a new strategy. So now it's true that the Lakers played except for that first series in the playoffs, every series was a seven game series and they were brutal. I mean, they were very, very physical series. And what people don't realize about the Lakers or because of it's, you know, the it's uh showtime and they run and they're so fast is that when called upon, they could be as physical as anybody. And they were very, very physically tough. I mean, and they just didn't play that way if they didn't have to play that way and not how they preferred to play. It's interesting because you realize, okay, so the Lakers won back to back and, no team had done it in a, like a, like 16 years or something at that point. It had been a long time. And you think, why is it so hard to play back-to-back? -back? And you really thought that year because, well, there's what Pat Riley called the, the disease of more, which is once you win the championship, everybody on your team wants more. They want more money. They want more minutes. They want more interviews. You know, everybody thinks they're a star. And we've all seen it. Like the 85 Bears, that was my favorite. Like I figured out why the 85 Bears didn't repeat, and there were all these reasons. 12 guys on the 85 Bears after they won the Super Bowl opened the bars. Everybody on the team opened a bar. And there's no way when most of your players own bars downtown that you're going to win the, uh, the Super Bowl. So <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. And so that requires leaders like, you know, Magic and the coach to sort of keep everybody in line. And it's a little bit tougher than the Bulls when the Bulls did it because the Bulls had one sort of alpha dog and nobody questioned it, which was Jordan. Uh, but the Lakers had you know they had magic but they had a lot of really great players who were they were more like a band and in a way like many poles of power so uh and then you realize the other reason is that you they play so many extra games their season is so much longer and the games that they play in the playoffs are like three times more physical and tough than the regular season games so it's almost like just to physically recover from that and then go and do it again becomes very 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 physically hard and I just think that the Lakers were able to do it. Then the Bulls did it like three times and three times.
but it takes an insane kind of focus. And I think that as far as the jazz go, that's a really interesting statistic about Stockton's points. Okay. Because what people don't realize, and it's what Jordan had to learn is when you get to the playoffs, it's a different game, completely different game. When you play the same team over and over and over again, they start to develop strategies just for you and your tendencies and figure out guys just working on ways to shut you down. So everything gets much, much tighter in the postseason. So that's when you have these, that's why the defense becomes so important in the postseason because you have guys that can score like crazy in the regular season and the shots that are there for them all season that they've grown used to are suddenly not going to be there. And especially in this era when, you have like the Pistons, Lambeer. If you go inside against Lambeer, you're going to get hammered. And that's just a price you're going to have to pay if you want to score inside. So you're going to have to figure out another way to score. So, and I, and I, and they were great. Obviously, they got to the champion, they got to the finals twice, and the Bulls beat them twice, if I'm remembering correctly, but never really figured out that you have to play a completely different kind of way in the playoffs. And I think, Another thing you mentioned that was interesting, you said Tarpley wasn't drinking or whatever he wasn't doing that made him able to function at a high level. A lot of guys, you look at them, and as a kid, I remember thinking, why is this guy not great? Like, why is this guy, why can he go out and score 35 and the next night he disappears? What's going on? And a lot of those guys were drugs at that time. And you have these guys who like came to the Lakers, like Wes Matthews, if you remember Wes Matthews, such a great player. And you think, why wasn't Wes Matthews one of the stars of the era? He sure should have been. And he had all these other problems that he, you know, that he was dealing with, that he, you know, shortened his own, whatever, limited his own career. So then you realize that that's a huge part of it too, which you never account for, which is being able to sort of stay focused, not get tempted and stay on this mission year after year after year, which Jordan was able to do, Magic was able to do, I mean, and Kareem was able to do, but a lot of guys can't do it. And that's a kind of talent in and of itself, I think. Last question from our audience uh, is from Kurt Affair, who's been a great portion of our class today. Rich, what player from that era do you think would excel today and vice versa? Who today would excel in that era? I think LeBron would excel in that era. I mean, LeBron, I could see very easily playing on the Pistons, you know, or playing on any of these teams. I don't know about Steph Curry. I don't know how well he would have done in that era when the three-point shot wasn't what it is now and you couldn't really feast on the three-point shot. I mean, team coaches didn't want it and it wasn't seen in the same way. I, like I said, I think obviously magic would have been great. Now all these guys would have been great. Now Jordan would have been great now, but the guy that sort of seems like he's made for this era, Scotty Pippen, like I said before, because he played with such finesse and he was so like sort of such a tall player, like his, he was long, something about him and he could play inside or outside. People don't remember that. I think the year before this year, they had Mike as an experiment. Doug Collins had Michael Jordan play point guard for 20 games or something. And he almost averaged a triple double a night, you know? So, and just like, like, I think the great players are the players that are very versatile and they can play any position. So just like magic can go in and play center. He can play any position on the floor. And those guys would all excel now. And Jordan could probably play any position on the floor, but center. Maybe, you know, there's a great quote, one of my favorites, where Bobby Knight saw Jordan play as part of the Olympic team that he was the coach of in 84. And Bobby Knight was friends with the general manager of of Seattle. And he said, you got to draft this kid. Jordan going to be the best ever. And Stu Inman, I think was his name. And he said, "Uh, we already have a guy like Jordan. We have a Clyde Drexler. 
we need a center. And he said, well, then play him at center. You know, and there's really something about that, which is just get the best players and then figure out where they play. And I think guys yeah. like that, they'll, they, would, they would excel in any, at any period of time. Well, I'll tell you what, it's been a great conversation. Again, please, everyone out there, if you haven't got it already, please go ahead and get the awesome book, When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. So, Rich, we leave the class with you, my friend. What are you going to go ahead and, and say to everyone out there as far as the book? Why should they go ahead and grab it? Or anything else you want to go ahead and pitch where people can follow you? Anything you want, my friend. Well, I'll tell you what. I have a column, a regular column in the Wall Street Journal. It comes out once a month. It's called Back When. And it's all stuff that uh, was important to me when I was a kid. The next one's about the whole draft in gym class, you know. We all went through the NBA lottery personally at some point in gym. So it's about that. And the last one I wrote was about Bruce Springsteen. So it would be cool if people check that out because it's, and I wrote one of these about the five lessons you can learn from watching Michael Jordan finally overcome the Pistons. And the key one, I think that I try to take to in my life is like, basically don't lose your temper. Don't get drawn in, you know, which is such a big part of sports, which is I used to watch my father play my brother, older brother in basketball. And it was like the great, I don't know if you remember the movie, The Great Santini, but it was kind of like The Great Santini, those games that, and the way my father who was getting older would beat my brother is by taunting him. A father taunting his son until my brother went crazy. And it's like, that's what the Pistons were doing to the Bulls. And that's what everyone will try to do to you. So that's my big lesson and my takeaway from this season and life, which is, don't let other people determine your mood. Stay with your plan and stay with your game. Otherwise, you're playing their game and you can't win their game. Please go ahead and get his book today. If you really want to go ahead and just uncover why 1987-88 is, in Rich's opinion, right there for you, the greatest NBA season. I can't disagree because you look at all the teams, you look at all the players, the matchups, the games from that era. I remember it fondly. To me, as again, I have to say it's one of the greatest Lakers seasons of all time. Absolutely, indeed. And you can tell why by checking out the book today. When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. It's available everywhere you get your books. Rich, it's just been such a great pleasure having you on. Any last thoughts before we head on out? Enjoy the basketball season. It's coming. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Rich, uh, I just wanted to reiterate uh, Gerald's thanks and uh, Magic Man and Joe and Gerald, uh, you know, have been doing a lot of hard work with the Lakers fast break. And I think the community here is going to really benefit from your insights. I feel like we could talk to you and ask you questions all day. So uh, thanks a lot for taking the time. And that's a handsome looking uh, Telecaster right behind you, by the way. Thank you very much. Maybe after this call, I will plug it in and play some Rolling Stones tunes or some Bruce Springsteen. It is Rich Cohen. Please go ahead and check out his awesome book today, When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. Well, Rich, thank you so much for stopping by Lakers History 101. Everybody out there truly cannot thank you enough for stopping by. Remember, we've got the game tomorrow. Brooklyn stops by to face off against the Los Angeles Lakers in exhibition basketball tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Please go ahead and check that out. Playback.tv slash Lakers Fast Break. And of course, we've got an awesome post game headed your way from all of us right here at the Lakers Fast Break Podcast.